Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Uh, Mark uh, 13. So where are we today? Somebody, somebody come up here and preach for us. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that's actually a pretty good image there of uh, being overwhelmed by everyday life, bills, appointments, all of those things. You're juggling activities and things are in your mind and kind of clouding your mind and you don't feel stable necessarily because of all the things that are going on in your heart and life. And then uh, on what happens if uh, you know, and that's easy enough when the infrastructure's okay, when you know where everything is. I know there are stores, and I can go get things at stores, but what happens if the infrastructure goes away, and everything that you depended on, like your entire culture just changes overnight, and you're kind of like, where's this going? Well, let me give you a couple of examples of this, setting up the stage for the passage. is uh, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of uh, women from Iran in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, but they were very stylish, like Vogue magazine, very modern, and when you see pictures today, you see them covered uh, from head to toe in long robes. And what happened was in, uh, what, 1979, March of that year, the Ayatollah, the Ayatollah Khomeini announced mandatory Islamic dress code, right? And can you imagine, all of a sudden, their world changed overnight, and there's this imposition upon them of something they didn't want and they weren't pursuing, it just, their culture completely changed. Rebecca and I were riding in the car this week, and she said, have you heard what's been going on in Sweden? And as a matter of fact, I had not heard what was going on in Sweden, so my wife likes to tell me those things, which is good. And uh, so she read about what's going on in Sweden. There is a lot of uh, conflict, bloodshed, uh, guns, drugs, gangs, and, and what happened was Sweden wanted to have open borders. You know, they had a lot of affluence, and they had relative peace, and they were hoping that people from all over the world would come into Sweden. They would adopt their view of the world and entered into the affluence and into the peace and it has not worked the way that they thought. And so these people in Sweden are like, are thinking, what in the world do we do? This is a, the Swedish prime minister said, Sweden has never seen anything like this. No country in Europe has seen anything like this. And so they're thinking, what happened to our home? This changed overnight, what happened here? I was reading a story uh, in a book by Trevin Wax called This Is Our Time, and he's talking about what it means to live in the modern world. And uh, he interviewed a pastor, and, uh, and this is a pastor he respected, had been kind of a mentor. And he asked this pastor, he said, what, what's, uh, what's it like ministering in the world now versus when you first started? And they'd been having a great conversation, just conversation flowing, and at this point the pastor just stopped and pursed his lips and he really thought about it. And this is what he said. He said, Trevin, to be honest, I sometimes feel like I'm not at home in my own country anymore. And what he meant is just there's been a rapid change over the past years uh, in the tone of political discussions and all sorts of things that have happened. He said, I just don't feel at home. I don't feel at rest. And if you were to talk to most people, uh, they would say, yeah, I, I don't feel at home here. I feel disconnected. So we're looking at a passage that I, that I really have come to love because Jesus just gives us an honest take on what it's like living in the world. He's preparing his followers for hard things. And what he's saying is this. I summed it up in my mind. 
your world can end without the world ending. Your world can end without the world ending. And Jesus is there for both. When your world ends and when the world ends, Jesus is there for both of those. And we see them in this passage as we're reading this. He's there for you when the world ends and he's there for you when your world ends, when everything changes. So if you're willing and able in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read, not Matthew, but Mark 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will, call, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the, de the days. And then if someone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these, all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Since the reading of God's word, it's all true, and he's given it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we study it together. Well, there's so many questions uh, running through people's minds in this room, and we have a short time. And so we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach us, uh, teach us the main things we need to know from this passage and help the details to fit within that. Would you bless us and be with us as we think about the way that you love us, even in the midst of the hard things that are going on in the world, and will continue to go on in the world until Jesus returns. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless me. Mm. I'm a basket case of a human being. And I need to hear this as much as I need to say it. And people need for me to be able to say it. So I pray that your spirit would guide and lead and that you would bless our time together. Bless us and be with us now, we ask in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, have a seat. So as we're looking at this... uh, we have two questions and three points, and uh, I'm planning for it not to take as long as that sounds. Knowing it's me, it might take a little bit, but we'll see. Two questions. First question, what are we looking at? And so I get a lot of questions these days uh, about whether or not this is the end times. Stephen, are we in the end times? Now, for some of you who might not know what that term means, it's a reference to the very end of time when Jesus comes back and restores all things, removes all evil and wickedness and sin, and the thing that we're hoping for the world to be like, the world becomes. Uh, But the end times for a lot of people is there's a lot of unrest, uh, people's character and uh, natural uh, environment Things go from bad to worse, and things get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. And that's often what people mean. And so when people are looking at today, they're, they're thinking, well, maybe this is it. Uh, but some of you are old enough to remember back in the 1970s, people were saying this. And I'm old enough to remember back in the 1980s, people were asking the same questions. Uh, I, was, I was just a wee lad back in the 1980s. Um, And so, uh, is Jesus predicting the time period just before his return? And I think I have to just defer to Jesus' words in 1332, where he says, No one knows that day or hour. Not angels, not Jesus, he says, speaking of his human nature. And uh, I promise, not anyone on YouTube knows what's going to happen. So people for a long time have claimed that they have deciphered the clues and none of them have been right. In fact, this passage kind of says the the opposite, that these events that are taking place are not clues. They're not piling up and say, okay, if there are enough of these at one time, we think Jesus must be coming back. People have been doing this for years. And Jesus says many things in this passage that kind of says, no, don't don't take catastrophe to mean that his return is imminent. So in verse 7, he says, do not be alarmed. Wars must take place but the end is not yet. 13 verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he specifically says there's a delay 
here. A man goes on a long trip in verse 34, and they don't know when, how long it will be before he comes back. So uh, Jesus is not talking specifically about the end of time here. Um, But he is giving his followers a prediction about the future, right? But not necessarily our future, because their future is our past, right? So for them, Napoleon was way far in the future, but for us, Napoleon is in the past. And so a good bit of what he's talking about here is really in the past, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So look again in chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? They've just come out of the temple. Jesus is saying, these buildings. And he says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So that happened in 70 AD. And much of what we're looking at in this passage is talking about that event, which is a past event for us. But commentators, and I think they're right in this, point out there are, there are a variety of time frames that are referenced in this passage. One is, yes, the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That was the end of their world, not of our, the world, but of their world at that time. It was a catastrophe. They, they left. Hordes of people were killed with that. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Uh, a second time frame. When Jesus, who is called here the Son of Man, in verse 26, refers to remove all evil, the end of the world, when Jesus comes back and restores all things. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And then there's the third thing, and this is really what I think we're going to focus on because it's really relevant for us, is the, the between times, between 70 AD and the return of Jesus, and a lot of what Jesus says here is not just relevant for the apostles and the destruction of the temple, but it's relevant for all of us because we, I don't know if you're right now, there, there are rumors of war right now. Um, there are earthquakes, there are famines, there are all sorts of things that people are dealing with in the world that this passage is relevant and for, and it's addressing for us. So he's talking about personal cataclysms and by extension the end of our world and us thinking through, uh, you know, is Jesus going to be with me if we go through something that terrible? Because we worry and we have anxiety. And Jesus is addressing his disciples here. He's telling them that what is going to happen because he's preparing them for the between time, between the resurrection of Jesus and then the resurrection of us, the return later on as that takes place. So what he's doing is discipleship. He's not coming immediately. No one knows that day or hour. So don't presume that the, the events that are difficult and hard in the world are harbingers of his coming. They may not be. They're probably not because these things have been going on for a long, long time. But we do have to say uh, that the idea with all the things that are going wrong and and bad with the world, uh, that the idea, the hope that Jesus would come back sooner rather than later is, is not misguided because of what we know about God. He hates sin. He hates evil. He hates pain. We read this earlier from Revelation that he's going to wipe away all tears. There will be no more crying, mourning, or pain. It's all going to be taken away. That is on God's agenda. And when we talk about the character of our God, he delights to give good gifts to his children. This is what we see in Scripture. Um, And so when we hear of wars, rumors of war, earthquake, persecution, betrayal, society's very foundations shaken, that's the natural question we're asking. Is Jesus going to come back? Because we know how compact. He stepped in with people who had paralysis and other things to help. Is he stepping in sooner rather than later to help? 
And he says, that's not a concern for you. Don't ask that. Don't, you can ask the question, but there's not an answer that's going to be forthcoming. And uh, in fact, as I was thinking about it this week, I realized, you know, my, my desire for Jesus to come back right now is kind of me-centric. <laughs> uh, it is, because it's kind of like, I'm tired. You know, that's that old uh, Old Man River song. I'm tired of living. I'm scared of dying. Old Man River just goes, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm tired of living. Not with you. I love you. Okay, you're my wife. Okay, so um, I love my family. You know, it's not, it's not any of those things. It's just like the constant barrage. The Bible talks about us groaning with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for that day when all the burdens are taken off. I feel that, right? But it's very me-centric. And I don't really take into account all the people who are, you know, from this time on who are still left to be born, who still are left to be brought into the kingdom of God, and Jesus is still rescuing people. He's making them and then redeeming them, like saving them. Uh, isn't that a fantastic thing? So I can wait until people I haven't, who haven't been born yet that I will meet someday in heaven are born and brought in. That will be fantastic. So some of my best friends haven't even been born yet. That's good. Okay. So that's the first question. Is uh, why, you know, I forget what the question was, but you remember. Okay, second question. Why does God judge? Um, because this is a judgment passage against Jerusalem and uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, judgment is kind of a, a hor- horrible thing to the modern world. I was listening to a, a podcast uh, this week. Uh, no, it was this week? Last no, week. Pretty soon, long ago. Not, not long ago. I was listening to a podcast when the idea of God's judgment came up, and the, the guest on the show, on the episode, said, you know, we lose, as Americans, how important the, uh, God's judgment is. And, and we take for granted things like we have police, and we have judges, and we have lawyers, and we have a constitution. But if you lived in a part of the world where you did not have such things, and you lived under what was really an oppressive system, the idea of God's judgment would have seemed fantastic to you. This is what N.T. Wright says about it. He said, that's a quote. I think it's going to be on here. We got it. Been, there we go. Okay. So N.T. Wright said this. The picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief. That there will indeed be a judgment in which the creator God will set the world right once and for all. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. So, God's wrath is a good thing. God's judgment is a good thing. But to the Jews who would be reading this, God's judgment would have been a shocking thing because God's judgment was was reserved for the nations, those people out there, but certainly not for us. And so Jesus is speaking this. It's confusing for the apostles and maybe confusing for us. And what is he talking about? Let's, Let's deal with this. A little bit. So now we get into the points. Right? They're going to be shorter than usual, but we're okay. Okay. First one, and that is Jesus loves during difficulty. And uh, we're going to look specifically at verse 8 
He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And he's saying that these are all birth pains, meaning that that's not the event itself and it's not imminent. Uh, it's birth pains, which means this is, this is going to be over a period of time. And don't presume that any one contraction or birth pain is actually the coming. Okay, so here's what's going on. In verse 1, we read that Jesus and his apostles passed the temple building. And what I've been told, what I read um, from all my reading this week and in the past, is the temple at that time was beautiful. It was one of the wonders of that time period, and people would come and visit Herod the Great's temple. Herod the Great's the one who was trying to kill Jesus. He's the one who built this temple. It was supposedly fantastic. Huge stones shipped in, making this, this beautiful structure. And so they're walking through, uh, Jesus and his apostles, and they're looking at the buildings. And it's not an architectural tour, necessarily, but they couldn't help but see it. And then they respond and point out how beautiful this is. right? And again, it's not just about the architecture, I don't think, because if you're putting yourself in their shoes, Jesus is the Christ, He's coming in. He's going to reign. They're going to drive out the Romans. And so this temple, I'm sure they were thinking, Jesus is going to have this. This is going to be really good. This is going to belong to us. I mean, it's going to belong to Jesus. It's going to belong to Jesus. This is going to be fantastic. Jesus, this will be yours, and Jerusalem will be everything that it's supposed to be. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, they were sure that this is going to be central to what Jesus is doing. John and James, in a, a few chapters earlier, they asked Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? Which is a really bad question to ask, right? So they, uh, but they ask that. And so they have this sense, Jesus is coming into his kingdom and we're stepping in Jerusalem. This is his city and this is his temple. It's going to be fantastic. And then Jesus responds and says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so they're confused and disturbed because isn't, Everything centered around the temple building and what's going to take place here in Jerusalem? Isn't, isn't that the way this is supposed to work? And they asked Jesus about it. And so when Jesus is having this conversation with them, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with the temple right in view. And he starts talking about it. And I love this section with Jesus because he's not approaching it as just a teacher or a professor. He's approaching this with the pastor of people's hearts. And he's talking to them, and I, I imagine pretty a, a wistful voice. This is, um, this is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus in Mark's gospel. The longest one. And he's talking about this really, really difficult event, which may let us in a little bit into the heart of Jesus. Uh, because this is Jesus who loves us, who died for us, who redeemed us from our sins. Jesus took on flesh because he loved us and was unwilling for his people to face punishment for the things that we had done. He loves us that much. And so what Jesus is doing here is preparing his people for what is going to be a very difficult season in their lives. And I want you to notice something very important about what Jesus is saying here. He's, he doesn't ever say, if you love me, then bad things won't happen. If you believe in me, you're not going to go through this hardship. And what he also doesn't say is, if I love you, then you're not going to go through this hardship. In fact, they're going to. Jesus loves us and we face difficulty. He doesn't eliminate the difficulty. He shepherds us through it and goes through it with us. And you have to know that to do life well 
and to be able to be resilient. So there, there's a modern version of Christianity that portrays God as moving you towards your version of happiness in this life. That if you believe hard enough, if you love Jesus enough, if you do the things you're supposed to, you're going to get your perfect life here and now. And that's not what the Bible teaches. This is what Larry Crabb, uh, uh, a psychologist, Christian counselor, said. He, he, says, he talks about the counterfeit gospel. And he says, shrink Christianity into a good enough, good enough life of morality, good values, friendly relating, and church involvement designed to win from God the good life of good things that define the abundant life. The obvious error of the health and wealth gospel is cleverly delivered in Christian-sounding ways that encourage Christians to believe that every bad thing will become good in this life. And I heard somebody commenting on this quote and said, Every time I get discouraged, it's because I have bought into this counterfeit gospel. And life doesn't reflect that. If you think, if I'm following Jesus and he loves me and he died for me, then bad things shouldn't happen in my life. Then you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to be discouraged. And you might even end up in despair and wondering if any of this is true. But what Jesus says in this passage is, I love you, so I'm telling you now beforehand so you know this is going to happen. And I love you, and I'm with you, and you're going to stand in the power of my Holy Spirit before people who are trying to kill you and proclaim my word. Because I love you, I'm going to be with you and shepherd you through this. That's what he's saying here. So no matter what we go through, he loves us. And this is true, whatever cataclysmic or small situation you find yourself facing. He loves you as much as he ever has in every situation. He loves you as much at that moment when you're struggling as when you're celebrating. He loves you as much at that moment when you're going through pain as when you're going through pleasure. He loves you as much in both of those things. So how do you know Jesus loves you? It's not because... He takes away all of your struggles. It's because he took on your greatest struggle. He took on your sin. He took on your guilt. He took on your punishment. And he went to the cross so that no matter what you're facing, you know that underneath me is a safety net of God's love and salvation and redemption. If I were to die in this life, which you are, I'm going to go straight into the presence of the one who loves me. He loves me no matter what I'm facing, no matter what I'm going through. So there's no fear of hell that hangs over. There's no guilt that hangs over. And even though we know what we're, we're flawed and we're, we have failed, he still loves us no matter what we're facing. Um, so what he's telling us is that he loves us and he's telling us how to face the difficulties of the world. He's with us. He's going to stay with us. And someday he's going to receive us into his presence. Um, and there are some difficult things that we're going to face that's going to, beyond our, going to be beyond our control. Not his, but he's going to allow it. And he's even going to bring it, like he's talking about here, with the, uh, what's going on in Jerusalem. Second point here. Jesus works during disaster. So chapter, again, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. They say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said that, to the one who said it do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down and so what jesus is talking about is the destruction of jerusalem and and clearly the apostles thought that jesus had the same idea about jerusalem that they had right this is it 
This is the centerpiece of everything God is going to be doing in the world. And so this is going to remain, and when Jesus comes in, he's, of course, going to come into Jerusalem, and that's going to be the hub of all of what God is doing in the world. And uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left standing on another. So whatever they thought Jerusalem was and the temple was, Jesus is saying it's not that because these are going to go away. So two reasons they're going to go away. One, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I don't need to go into it in much detail. But one is the, the removal because of the corruption that is there. He's bringing justice upon Jerusalem because of the corrupt religious structure that has been set up there. The leaders used the things of God to gain things from themselves and were defrauding the people through the temple. And so... Uh, there was lots of scandal and lots of abuse and lots of corruption that was taking place. And, you know, we, we're familiar with that. We hear about it in the news quite a bit so we can know what we would want to happen, the cleansing of our institutions. Uh, that's what Jesus is talking about. I'll give you a picture of this, that the, the whole structure needed to be gone. Um, we uh, got to do a mission trip uh, probably, what, 11 years ago now? Something like it was a long time ago. To Spain. And we stayed in this uh, apartment there. And it was kind of stone, painted stone. Kind of like the walls in here, stucco-ish. And when we came in, my daughter Catherine has very strong allergies. And she has asthma. And so there had been times when she was young where she couldn't breathe. And we remembered that. And so when we walked in, the walls of the apartment where we were staying were covered around the windowsills and others with mold. And we were thinking, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then my little dynamo that I married all the, went into high gear, and she got all the cleaning supplies that she could, and uh, the rest of us were just, like, reading and thumbing through things, and she's hitting the windows, and she's scrubbing, and she's getting this whole place clean because she loves her daughter and she loves us, right? Cleansing this entire place. And so this is what God is doing uh, in this passage He's cleansing and removing all of the corruption, and the corruption goes so deep that the whole system has to be gotten rid of. So in, uh, we had some friends in Clemson, and they, in their large house, they had a problem with their air conditioning, and they had black mold throughout the entire inner, like, throughout the house. And so people came in, they were going to clean it, but it was, in, it was in the wood. It had gotten in everything. So they just basically left up the, the, the outside wall, and gutted the entire house. You know, people came in hazmat suits and they were cleaning this thing out. So this is what he's talking about, cleansing and getting rid of this. But there's another reason, and it's this. There's a fulfillment that's taking place. And, you know, we tend to think that uh, getting our lives cleaned up is, is easy, right? We can, you know, I can clean up my life pretty well. I just need to get up and start walking in the morning. That'll get my life where I need it. If I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and I start reading then I can actually read instead of like pitting away my time on my phone and everything. That would be good. Uh, if I get some exercise, I can lose a little bit of weight. That would be good. I can take up a hobby. That would improve my life. Right? My, my life needs improving. I could take up the kazoo. The kazoo would be really good. Bird watching. That would be fun, you know. We, we think it's, I can improve my life with these small things. And we tend to think that way about religion. There's small things that I can do. Maybe big things that I could do. So, for instance, for them, you know, I can offer a sacrifice, and that just takes care of everything. 
And so you had all of these Jews who were tied to this idea of, if I offer a sacrifice to the temple, that will completely remove all of my sin, all of my guilt, I'll be forgiven, and the sacrifice of an animal will do it. And that's a, to them, that's, that's pretty important. So there's kind of like a corner market on God's forgiveness at the temple, because that's where I can sacrifice an animal. Uh, Josephus, writing in the first century, uh, he was born around the time of Jesus and was writing during that time period, uh, he talked about this one particular Passover where he, they counted the number of uh, lambs that were sacrificed. 250,000 lambs sacrificed to deal with people's sins. And then you know how many they probably sacrificed the next time? 250,000 again. Why? Because the first one did not take away sin. They had to keep offering these sacrifices again year after year after year because none of them could do it because it's not just a small thing to deal with sin. So when Jesus came to the earth, when God the Son took on human flesh and came to the earth and he went to Jerusalem and he went to the cross, he was actually going before the bar of God's judgment and asking the question, what do my people owe? What do they owe? And the answer is everything everything, their lives, everything. And Jesus said, I'll pay that for all of them. So at one moment on the cross, Jesus died for the sins of all those who believe in him. He said, I've taken it on myself. All their sin is removed. It's gone. There's no more need for a sacrifice at all. All of the guilt is gone. Now, this is the theme in Mark, as you go through, he's talking about the temple being removed. And he's writing before 70 AD and the temple being destroyed. So throughout the gospel, Mark is talking about the end of the temple because Jesus has come. And it starts in Mark chapter 1, with the, it talks about Jesus, but then it goes immediately into talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist at the Jordan River is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins at the Jordan River, not the temple. And people are floored by this. Can he do this? Can he, can he, they have to go to the temple, right? This is where forgiveness is. Jesus in Mark chapter two, there's a man who's lowered to the roof, a paralyzed man. And before Jesus heals this man, he says, son, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. And the people who are watching this recognize that Jesus has forgiven this man's sin. And who is this who even forgives sins? So as you're going through the Mark's gospel, there's this theme of forgiveness is not tied to this temple. Absolutely right. In the Old Testament, you read that the temple is the place that God set up on the earth for people to go for their sins to be forgiven, to offer the sacrifice. And it's still one place. But it's not one place, it's one person, it's one name, it's Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus alone. So temple was a picture of the coming of the one who would come to the temple, offer the sacrifice for all time, so that we might be forgiven. And it was necessary for the temple to be restored, uh, to be destroyed, so that people would not put their faith in the temple system, but in the person who fulfilled the temple system. So the removal of this is a sign that God's redemptive work was not isolated to this place, but was going to the Gentiles. It was going to the whole world, which is the Great Commission. 
And so he's sending people into the whole world. And the reason that the temple, part of the reason the temple is, is removed is the corruption, but also the fulfillment. And we as people would be so tied to this place that everything would be kind of centered here. But with the removal of the place, that means that God's people can go anywhere and bring the name of Jesus to that place. And that the temple is not the place, the temple is the person, and the temple is the people who bear the name and the spirit of that person wherever they are. This is a temple as much as anything in the Old Testament. This is a temple because God's Holy Spirit dwells here just as he did in the temple. This is a temple. So, building, oh, third point. There we go. Jesus Jesus says, I love you. You're going to go through these hard things. The hard things take place for a reason, but the hard things will not continue on forever. There's going to be a day when all the difficult and hard and brutal things will will end. Mark chapter 13, verses 26 to 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So there's a time frame at the beginning of this where Jesus is talking specifically about the uh, destruction of the temple. But then he, sh- he seems to shift because there are two questions that are asked. The, question, the first question is, when will this take place, which is the destruction of the temple? And then there's another question that was asked along with that is, uh, when will all of these things happen? When will this take place? So two different questions are taking place. And in the minds of the apostles, it's one event. But Jesus is dividing the question saying, there's one that's the destruction of the temple. That's when this building's going to go down. But someday, one day, the Son of Man is going to show up. And he's going to renew and make all things new. So Jesus isn't coming back yet. But he is coming back. <laughs> and that's really good news. Um, this is what Randy Alcorn said in his book uh, in he- on heaven, just titled Heaven. He said, what thrilled these expectant believers was not that God would rule in heaven. He already did that. Their hope was that one day he would rule on earth, removing sin, death, suffering, poverty, and heartache. They believed the Messiah would come and bring heaven to earth. He would make God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our hope. The hope is not simply I'm going to go to heaven one day. The hope is that Jesus is going to come to earth, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to be here with us, and how wonderful that's going to be. He's going to remake this thing suitable for who we will be then great picture of that years ago i think i've shared this uh picture in here a while back we bought a joanna and chip Gaines house you know the people who lived in us before they redecorated so we we've watched a couple of their shows and there's there's this one episode of uh fixer up is it fixer upper is that the name of it? fixer upper. some of you are like yes fixer upper we love that so that's idolatry and um, <laughs> we, we live in that house. Um, so we're watching a, an episode of Fixer Upper, and uh, they had taken on uh, the home renovation of a, a war veteran. Uh, he and his wife, they were older. She was declining in health. He wasn't able to do a lot of things for himself. And so they took on this renovation project for them. And so the house had, was kind of, had not been taken care of. It was dingy. It was dirty. 
Uh, and it also was not suitable for their increasing needs uh, to get around the house, wider door frames and those kinds of things for their uh, scooters. And uh, so the, they went in, uh, redesigned the whole thing. New walls, new doors, new everything. But they didn't just uh, make it more accessible. They, they actually put in a lot, of, a lot of modern amenities to make it easier for them. And so they completely transformed their living space. And of course, they were not in their living space for several days, maybe a couple of weeks, as this was being improved. So finally, Chip and Joanna on camera, like one of the most emotional moments of your life, let's get this on camera. Um, so they're coming into this house, this uh, veteran and his wife, and they're going from room to room, and they're showing this house completely redone and she cannot believe how fortunate they are. And every room they go in and she says, oh my goodness. And she can't say anything else. And they bring her into the next room. And she says, oh my goodness. And she's completely overwhelmed by the transformation. This is clearly our house. But it's no longer our house. It's something more. Someday, one day, Jesus is going to come back. And this is going to be transformed. And we're going to walk through and say, oh my goodness, oh your goodness, the goodness of our God to do this for us. So Jesus, what he's calling us to do, and this is, this is the main, uh, there, are like, there are maybe 19 or so verbs here, commandments that take place in this section. And they all have to do with the same thing. Be alert. Stay awake. Look to what's coming. Because what's coming is so good and so transformative that it can empower your life now. It enables you to say, as you look to the promises of Jesus and what he's going to do, it, may, it enables you to stand before the presence of God right now and say, oh my goodness, this is what is in store for me. I can't wait. So fix your eyes on Jesus and all the blessings that come with him as you walk through the difficulties of the world he doesn't say, if you love him, you won't face difficulty. He doesn't say, if I love you, you won't face difficulties. He says, I love you no matter what you face, and I'm going to go through it with you. Let me pray for us. Oh, that is good news for the weary soul uh, who is overwhelmed by the new cycle that's overwhelmed by all the things that we hear and all the speculation that people bring to what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, to know that one thing is fixed and certain on a horizon, that is your return. And someday, one day, you will come back and we will see with our own eyes uh, the fulfillment of all of your promises in Scripture. We're grateful that you go with us. We're grateful that you love us. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that right now you would accept this song as a song of praise and dependence and gladness in you. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.